0: To keep the 1.5 degree target alive, we need rapid change gathering force across entire sectors.
1: Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast that looks at the biggest problems and how we might solve them. On this episode, one of the biggest of all, climate change and the environment.
0: We have entered what is probably the most important decade in the history
1: of humankind. As we rapidly approach the COP26 climate summit, the World Economic Forum hosted experts around the world to discuss what we need to do to avert climate catastrophe. We
2: cannot afford to be engaging in any new fossil fuel enterprises. We have to be really smart about what we're Going to do here?
1: We'll hear more from the US presidential envoy on climate change, John Kerry, and we'll take a particular look at the importance of the ocean.
2: We can get depressed looking at the figures
0: of destruction when it comes to the natural world, but protecting nature in the marine environment does work. We know that. Marine protection is almost like a magic cure.
1: We'll be joined by a marine biologist who's in charge of what will be the biggest ever research ship to talk us through the ocean, climate change and what might be done.
3: Overfishing is the major threat to the ocean, but of course, climate change and plastic pollution are big contenders.
1: Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and please share it with your friends, leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, podcast editor at the World Economic Forum, and with a look at climate change and the ocean.
4: humans still behave like we used to behave in the land 15,000 years ago. In the ocean, we're still hunters and gatherers.
1: This is Radio Davos. In November, governments from around the world will meet in Glasgow for COP26, the climate summit, where they'll have to set out credible plans to get us on track for net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Joe Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, was among the speakers at a World Economic Forum event called Climate Breakthroughs, The Road to COP26. In the same week, the forum hosted the Virtual Ocean Dialogues, looking at the threats posed to the marine environment, not least from climate change, and also at how the ocean can play an even greater role than it already does in helping us combat global warming. To talk through both issues, I spoke to marine biologist Nina Jensen. Here's our conversation. Nina Jensen, am I saying that right, Nina? Yes, and you're in Oslo.
3: That is correct, yes.
1: and you are the CEO of Rev ocean. I'm really excited to hear about this. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and then tell us what Rev Ocean is because it sounds amazing.
3: It sounds and is amazing, and uh, happy to do so, uh, Robin. so uh, I'm a marine biologist by training, uh, an ocean enthusiast by heart and uh, basically decided from an early age that uh, I wanted to spend my life saving life in the ocean. Uh, so I've spent uh, more than 15 years of my life uh, in WWF, uh, but recently uh, started up the RevOcean initiative uh, together with the Norwegian billionaire Kjellinge uh, Røkke, with the sole purpose of uh, creating one healthy ocean. And we are currently building the world's largest and most advanced research and expedition vessel that we will offer as a free platform to scientists uh, and ocean experts from all over the world to come out with us and create the solutions that the ocean so desperately needs.
1: I mean, my idea of a marine biologist is Jacques Cousteau on an inflatable, you know, flipping over backwards with (laughs) with his fins on his feet. This, yeah. this is going to be... T- tell us about what will be on this ship.
3: Well, this is kind of like uh, James Bond uh, meets uh, science in a way. Uh, and it's not just one ship. Uh, it is more like four ships in one. Uh, so it's the most advanced uh, research vessel. Uh, it's also uh, an exciting expedition vessel it's a super yacht, uh, and it's also a highly advanced um, trawler. So we can take samples down to uh, six thousand meters. We're hoping to have uh, face recognition technology in the trawl to make sure that we're only getting the samples that we need. Uh, and we also so have a spec- face
1: recognition of fish.
3: Yes. Isn't that exciting? Okay.
1: Yes, it is.
3: <laughs> and we also have a specialized uh, vacuum uh, system or pump in the trawl that uh, allows us to bring the samples uh, right into the lab from the ocean uh, alive.
1: So when, when will you launch this
3: super well, that's, yacht of the environment? You know, that's still uh, the, the million dollar question. Uh, we were supposed to be out sailing now, Uh, But unfortunately, the ship is uh, delayed and we're still waiting for an updated timeline from the yard uh, in terms of when the ship will be ready. But we're hoping that it won't be in the too uh, distant future.
1: What would you say is the biggest threat to the ocean?
3: Well, what we've identified in uh, RevOcean is uh, still overfishing is the major threat to the ocean. But of course, uh, climate change and plastic pollution are uh, big contenders uh, in terms of being uh, the top problem. But all three are posing major challenges uh, that we need to resolve for the ocean going forward.
1: Right. Well, let's hear our first clip then from the virtual ocean dialogues. You mentioned overfishing. So this is an interesting one from Peter Thompson, who's the UN Secretary General Special Envoy for the ocean talking about food being fashion.
2: Food is fashion. What we eat today is not what our parents ate and certainly not what our grandparents ate. I'll give you a practical example. I opened the Fiji embassy in in Tokyo in the early 1980s and first discovered sushi. At that stage, sushi was only eaten in Japan. Uh, Then a revolution took place in the late 1980s. Now from the Congo to Alaska, you can uh, find sushi shops, right? But that happened within a space of a few decades.
1: The UN Secretary General Special Envoy for the Ocean, Peter Thompson, on discovering sushi. And this is the head of the Global Environment Facility, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez Echandi, on how we need to change our attitudes to the ocean.
4: The humans still behave like, uh, like, we, uh, like we used to behave in the land 15,000 years ago. In the ocean, we're still hunters and gatherers. So we need to generate a kind of a social contract, an understanding on how we manage those ocean resources. If we see the constitutions and the legal frameworks of most nations of the planet, there's a kind of a social agreement on how we manage resources and how we uh, aim for development. Uh, On the ocean, we don't have that.
1: So that was Carlos Manuel Rodriguez Echandi. He's the chief executive of the Global Environment Facility and former... Environment Minister of Costa Rica. So Nina, big question, I suppose, if you're saying that overfishing is the number one threat to the ocean, should we just stop fishing entirely? Or is there a way that we can exploit, for want of a better word, the ocean, but in a sustainable way?
3: Obviously the answer is we should not stop uh, fishing. Uh, Seafood and food from the ocean is an essential part of the solution going forward. But we obviously need to uh, manage our resources uh, much better and in a more holistic way. Uh, We need to restore the depleted uh, fish stocks and set aside an increasing area for marine protected uh, areas. And we also need to combat illegal fishing. Having said that, uh, I would much rather choose seafood over uh, a lot of the land-based food sources that are currently the dominant part of our food system. More than, I think, 2 billion people rely on food from the ocean for their uh, essential proteins. Let's
1: hear this clip now from M. Sanjayan, the Chief Executive of Conservation International, talking about the idea of Large-scale ocean conservation.
0: Now, the good opportunity we have right now is that we are finding that countries are willing to think about large, large-scale ocean conservation. If you go back to when I was in grad school, that was just completely not on the table. And then you had a couple of them being developed, one in the United States, papahanaumokuakea but also what we saw in uh, Kiribati and Phoenix Island protected areas. And you started seeing this idea that very large protection of a country's entire EEZ, for example,
4: is really possible.
1: That's M. Sanjayan of Conservation International saying it is possible for us to do large scale ocean conservation. Do do you agree with that?
3: Absolutely. And uh, history has shown us exactly that. We have been able to bring back uh, depleted fish stocks uh, that have completely collapsed and maybe even been gone for 25 to 30 years and some of them are now booming. You know, uh, uh, Two examples, uh, the uh, spring spawning herring uh, in Norway that had completely collapsed 30 years ago uh, and that rebound uh, as a result of, uh, uh, of improved management and listening to the scientific advice. And uh, another example from Norway, we had completely lost uh, bluefin tuna along our coast and it's been gone since the 1960s, I believe, uh, and it's now making its way back uh, and, uh, and we're s- slowly starting up uh, a sustainable fishery for it. So it is possible, uh, we should be moving in that direction and we should be able to harvest more uh, sustainable seafood in the future.
1: Well, let's stay in Norway then. This is, and you can help me with my Norwegian pronunciation here, The Norwegian Foreign Minister, Ina Eriksen Soreda.
3: I think you did a brilliant job. Oh, there we are. Thank you.
1: Um, <laughs> talking about, not one of the species you mentioned, talking about cod.
3: Back in the
5: early 80s, the Arctic cod stock was almost extinct. Uh, what we did was, together with Russia, enter into a very, um, I would say, precise and knowledge-based management. So we have a joint fisheries commission working very well on a daily basis. What we experience today is that the Arctic cod stock is maybe the most healthy cod stock, and it generates an income of around $1.2 billion a year on each side.
1: Ina eriksson Soreda, the Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs, talking about the recovery of cod stocks. So is that, is that another success story?
3: Absolutely. I mean, there are more than 23 uh, cod stocks globally, uh, but the uh, Barents sea cod is uh, one of the few that are actually harvested sustainably. And that is a result of uh, listening to the science, uh, combating illegal fishing and having a holistic management plan uh, between the different countries that are sharing the resource. So a great example of a success story and also how fish stocks should be managed sustainably.
1: Well, let's hear from Ina Eriksson. Sorry that again, I'm risking it, my pronunciation, by saying it three times now. Answering the question that I asked kind of early on in our conversation, whether we can use the ocean sustainably and the minister's opinion is yes. It is
5: an under-communicated message that we can actually make use of the oceans in a sustainable way. Whereas we can have more food, more nutritious food, we can take care of the uh, state of the ocean's health, but we can also use it as a way of, as I mentioned, boosting also um, our economy.
1: So Nina, let's move from Norway to my home country of England. Zach Goldsmith, Minister for Pacific and the Environment, would you believe? So he is an environment minister in the UK government and he calls marine protection a magic cure. You
0: know, we can get depressed looking at the figures of destruction when it comes to the natural world. And they are stark. I mean, it's, it's horrific. We're losing 30 football pitches worth of forest every minute. We're a million species facing extinction, plus the figures I mentioned earlier. But protecting nature in the marine environment does work. We know that. And the marine protection is almost like a magic cure. You look at any marine protected area in the world that's been set up and you see within a matter of three, four, five, six years, the catch for local fishing communities goes up. Outside of those protected areas, because they've become nurseries. So, the more protected areas we can create, the better. And quite often, they're controversial when they're starting, particularly with fishing communities. But after a few years of being established, they're embraced pretty, pretty much everyone. It's sort of a win win win.
1: That was Zach Goldsmith, a uh, minister in the UK government for the environment. Nina, tell us how you protect the ocean.
3: Well, we should uh, first and foremost uh, designate uh, marine protected areas for 30% of the ocean by 2030. Uh, That has been proven uh, to be uh, a a miracle cure or, or a recipe for success because it not only uh, protects uh, the species that are found within the marine protected areas, but it also have positive spillover effects to the areas around it, replenishing fish stocks and making the ocean more healthy uh, overall. So that is definitely a key part of the success factor. We also need to... uh, dramatically increase our knowledge and understanding of the ocean. Uh, So this decade ahead of us is a critical one. uh, And it's also the UN decade of ocean science, where we need to get the science that we need to create the ocean uh, that we want. So improving our knowledge. And then most importantly, it's fast tracking uh, the necessary solutions that are based on that knowledge making it more readily available for the decision makers so that they're making their decisions based on facts, but also making that knowledge available for technology providers, uh, innovators and startups uh, and established industries so that they can scale up the sustainable solutions, whether it is uh, in ocean energy, uh, restoration of important uh, corals or fish stocks, or even developing new exciting initiatives in carbon capture, uh, shipping, or kelp restoration.
1: That brings us beautifully to our next clip. This is Waldemar Kutz Director for Environment and Oceans at the Foreign Ministry of Chile.
4: Research shows that ecosystems such as mangroves, seagrass meadows, salt marshes, and are 10 times more effective at sequestering carbon dioxide annually on a per area basis than boreal, temperate or tropical forests. and. This is a point that I wanted to highlight because until now the UNFCCC has centred its focus on on forests, which is good. But we also have to centre the attention of the UNFCCC in what the oceans can do to tackle the climate change issue.
1: Waldemar Coutts, Director for Environment and Oceans at the Chilean Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The UNFCCC is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that he was referring to there. Nina, he's saying that the ocean can sequester carbon in a way that we think of forests doing, but we often forget that the ocean does even better. Is this a good thing, do you think?
3: Absolutely. And I think this is one of the most promising solutions uh, that the world is looking at, both in terms of uh, important Uh, restoration uh, of the ocean, but also as a a natural carbon capture mechanism. Uh, For so long, we've always been uh, looking to the forest uh, for capturing our CO2, when uh, the ocean uh, actually has a much bigger potential through uh, mangroves, seagrasses and kelp forests in uh, capturing uh, CO2. Uh, This would also be a very uh, important uh, solution uh, in terms of uh, providing important habitats for uh, fish uh, and other marine life uh, to regenerate. And uh, the same forest can also be a very important part of future food consumption, uh, biofuels, medicines, and a lot of other uh, products and uh, industries that we haven't even thought of yet.
1: Well, we're going to carry on talking about the climate change in the second half of this show. uh, We're gonna take a little break now. I'm talking to Nina Jensen, uh, marine biologist, the chief executive of REV Ocean, the world's largest research and expedition vessel. And we'll be right back after this.
6: Lars Stenkvist is the chief technology officer of Volvo Group, driving innovation during a critical moment of change as his company and the industry grapples with how to make transport more sustainable.
2: We must come up with new ways. We must develop a truly sustainable transport system, but within the boundaries of the planet.
6: Lars is tackling this challenge will take partnering with people we'd never imagined like our rivals.
2: For one piece of the puzzle, you can be partners, but for the majority of the pieces of the puzzles, there you stay competitors.
6: Meet the leader cut up with Lars to talk about how leaders will need to adapt to address the climate, how they'll need to be less directive and more collaborative, and the types of questions that they will need to ask to prompt both creativity and accountability.
2: Show me your road map. show me your ideas. Where are you taking us?
6: Lars talks about all this and more, including the one trait that no leader can fake on the next Meet the Leader.
1: You're listening to Radio Davos with me, Robin Pomeroy, talking with Nina Jensen, marine biologist in Oslo. We've just been talking about the recent Virtual Ocean Dialogues event, and now we're going to move on and talk about another event that actually happened in the same week, climate breakthroughs the road to COP26. Nina, as we were just mentioning before the break there, the ocean has a massive role in sequestering carbon dioxide, but also the ocean is potentially gonna be massively affected by climate change. What are the risks to the ocean from the effects of climate change?
3: Well, we're already seeing uh, some of the impacts, of course, uh, because uh, as as we know, uh, the seas have so far absorbed Uh, more than 90% of all the warming that has taken place in the past 50 years. And this does not come without uh, an effect. So we're seeing melting glaciers, rising sea levels, uh, bleaching corals and fish stocks uh, on the move. And uh, we do not yet have the full overview of what the negative effects of the ocean will be. But of course, we are heading towards at least a two degree uh, warming uh, of the ocean and of course the other uh, effect of the increasing CO2 emissions is increasing ocean acidification which will hugely impact on all the lower levels of the the food chain and everything that is building a skeleton from calcium carbonate, uh, basically corals, plankton uh, and, uh, and a whole range of other marine organisms.
1: It's much harder for them to build those structures if the water is more acidic is that right
3: that is absolutely right uh, and uh, it's basically if you imagine uh, 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 having a uh, a cookie in your hand and crushing it that's the same kind of uh, sensation It it's just the structure doesn't hold basically
1: let's listen to our first clip from climate breakthroughs the road to cop 26 cop 26 as we all know by now is the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's happening in November in the UK. And this was the chair of that event. And this is what he had to say.
0: The time we have left to keep the goals of the Paris Agreement within reach is diminishing, fast. If we're to keep the 1.5 degree limit alive, we must halve global emissions by 2030, and reach net zero emissions by the middle of the century. And this requires rapid action across the real economy. So it's really fantastic to see the momentum building throughout the whole of the corporate sector. Today, we have well over 2,000 companies and 130 investors signed up to the Race to Zero campaign. This is the gold standard of climate action that requires both a net zero commitment and short-term targets based on the science to get there.
1: Alok Sharma, president of COP26 in the UK government. The UK, of course, hosting this climate summit in November. Nina, you mentioned how this decade is very important. This is the chief executive of IKEA. I don't know how you feel about Sweden from Norway. There? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you look over at them with fondness or, or, or are they rivals?
3: It's like a love-hate uh, relationship, I think, in always uh, in a competitive but friendly spirit.
1: Wonderful. Well, that, that's the spirit we like here. So, this is the chief executive of IKEA, Jesper Brodin.
0: So I think we all can recognize that we have entered uh, what is probably the most important decade in the history of humankind. Uh, we stand before an ex- we stand in an existentialistic crisis that will impact every person, um, uh, every business, and uh, acknowledging that, um, of course, uh, uh, leads to um, a lot of uh, despair, a lot of fear. But what we are after is more what type of actions and leadership that we need to um, uh, put in front uh, because there is an opportunity for us
1: to resolve the situation, and we will. Jesper brought in the head of IKEA, and he said this is the most important decade in the, get this, history of humankind. I mean, that's a big claim, isn't it?
3: It is a big claim, but uh, he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've done such tremendous harm uh, to the planet uh, in a very short uh, time frame of the planet's existence. Uh, in the past 40 years, we've lost more than 40% of life in the ocean. We know that climate change is escalating and uh, we're losing nature uh, by the minute. So what we do and don't do this decade will be deciding for the future of mankind.
1: And this then is the head of the International Energy Agency, the energy industry, one of the most important emitters of greenhouse gases. This is Fatih Birol talking about the race against time.
4: Race to zero. It is important to understand that the race is not between the nations, but the race is against the time. And we should also acknowledge that some governments, some countries, are starting this race in front of the others. And therefore, it is very important that the especially those richer countries should support the efforts of developing nations to finish the race uh, together.
1: Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. Isn't it interesting that Norway, very wealthy country, a lot of it built on energy, are we seeing is Norway also now leading the way in, in the energy transition? Is this something you're aware of there, Nina?
3: Well, we are in many ways leading the way in the energy transition, but we're still also a dominate, dominating oil and gas uh, player. Uh, and uh, the initial response to uh, the IEA uh, report was that Norway will continue to develop its oil and gas resources, despite the fact that the IEA is now saying what environmental activists have been saying for, uh, for decades. Uh, that we have to stop developing fossil fuels. So uh, as a Norwegian, I find that quite embarrassing. I think we, uh, more than anyone, should take uh, the responsibility of transitioning completely away from fossil fuels and into a 100% renewable energy system. So I think the transition is going too slow. We're cutting our emissions too slow. And we really need to both put our money in our mouth where we say that we're going uh, to a net zero uh, or ideally a carbon negative future.
1: That brings us very clearly to potentially the star guest at the climate event, John Kerry, who is the U.S. President's Special Envoy on climate change. He was saying very much what you are about new oil and gas exploration.
2: Even if we got to net zero by 2050, we still have to suck X numbers of billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere in order to prevent the long-term damage that what's up there already is going to do. The IEA tells us that we cannot afford to be engaging in any new fossil fuel enterprises, basically. In other words, new mines, new new coal-fired power plants, major gas infrastructure, which will be stranded assets in the next 20, 30 years. We have to be really smart about what we're going to do here.
1: John Kerry, the U.S. presidential envoy on climate change. Let's hear a little bit more from him because it's very interesting, isn't it, Nina, what you were saying, um, a a government making the right noises about climate change and then pushing ahead with uh, extraction of fossil fuels. And I think we see it everywhere. It's going to be very interesting to see what this U.S. US administration does, because they're talking the talk. And this is John Kerry about what he calls
2: happy talk. Well, let's be clear, because I hear an awful lot of uh, happy talk about what people are currently doing or are going to do, when the reality is that even if we did everything that was promised to be done in those plans that were put together for Paris, even if we did everything, And we're not. The Earth's temperature would still rise by 3.7 degrees, not 1.5, not 2, but 3.7. And because we're not doing everything we set out to do, we're actually headed to probably 4 degrees, 4 plus, 4.5, according to some scientists. So I don't want to debate, and it's not worth the debate, of whether it's 3 or 3.5. Anything over 2 is pretty catastrophic, and anything over 3 is genuinely catastrophic. And so, and by the way, all the damage we're seeing today, everything that's happening in terms of the renewed intensity of storms, the fires, the intensity of fires, the warming of the ocean, the changing of the chemistry of the ocean, more than in millions of years, many other things. All of this is at 1.2 degrees increase in Earth's temperature since the industrial age.
1: John Kerry, and you can see all of what he had to say at the Climate Breakthroughs event. I'll put a link to the session in the blog that accompanies this episode. But let's hear one more from him saying why COP26 in Glasgow could be even tougher than Paris in 2015, the conference which gave us the Paris Agreement on climate change.
2: Paris was easy compared to what we have to do in Glasgow, because in Paris, every nation wrote their own plan. Basically, according to what they were willing to do. In Glasgow, knowing what we now know, seeing the evidence mounting, seeing the level of damage we're paying for, the interruption of business, all the consequences of the accelerated climate transformation taking place, which is the crisis, seeing all of that, we have to go to Glasgow and we have to write the plans that we have to write. Not that we want to, or we're satisfied, but that we have to. And Glasgow, I think, is really the last best hope we have to be able to pull ourselves together <clears throat> and not get everything done, because nobody's going to get everything done in a matter of a few months, but set us on clearly, definable, understandable, achievable, transparent tracks, which lead us... To the goals we're now hearing people ballyhoo fairly frequently, which is net zero 2050. John Kerry.
1: Since the Climate Breakthroughs event, the World Economic Forum has brought together more than 70 global chief executives of major multinational companies to write an open letter to the G7 summit calling for much greater government action on climate change. Things such as putting a price on carbon emissions as a way to incentivize the transformation away from fossil fuels and removing subsidies to fossil fuel sectors. To tell us about that, this is Dominic Warre, head of the World Economic Forum Centre for Global Public Goods.
4: We're facing um, three challenges. Uh, We're facing a climate challenge, which has been well documented. We know we have to be on track for a net zero world by 2030, and we know that we have to get going right now. So in the next two or three years, we need that mobilization of investment, technology, innovation to get us on track first. Second, um, we have the COVID challenge. Um, it's still rippling around the world. It's still a tragedy in terms of human and economic cost. And this means that many governments uh, don't have much money to spend on other things, for example, uh, climate change. So to open up the possibility of private sector finance to help transition the economy is super important. And that's what this letter and the CEO message to G7 uh, leaders is saying. It's an invitation for cooperation. Change some policy, bring down some risks. There's an awful lot of money and innovation and technology ready to be deployed. The third um, issue which we face um, is just literally the scariness of not doing anything. And a report by Swiss Re suggested that if we just do nothing here, uh, we're going to face 18% of global GDP being eroded over the next 30 years. That's far bigger than the horrendous impacts that we faced from COVID. So um, we have to do something, we have to do it very quickly, and we have an opportunity um, through the tragedy of the COVID pandemic to learn about the partnerships that COVID showed us through the scaling up of vaccines to partner also on tackling climate change, public-private cooperation to fix the problem. 78 CEOs, you add them up, it's about just over $2 trillion about the sort of GDP of Italy or thereabouts. So um, in the G7, which is why we released it just before the meeting, that would be a seat at the table.
1: Dominic Warre of the World Economic Forum. You can find that letter to the G7. Search for supercharging public-private efforts in the race to net zero and climate change. And there'll also be a link in the blog that accompanies this episode. Nina, big companies talking the talk, but do you have any confidence in their real willingness to do what's needed.
3: I absolutely do. And uh, to be honest, I'm putting more of my faith in uh, the corporate sector and a big industry than I am in politicians. Politicians uh, have uh, talked for way too long. We are at COP26 uh, and we still have a Paris agreement that really does not take us uh, to the goal that we need uh, to reach. So we have to rely on uh, the corporate sector uh, to, uh, to do this, and we are seeing increasingly that they are not own- just owning up to their responsibilities, but they're also recognizing the opportunities. We're seeing an increasing uh, level of uh, finance uh, and investments moving in a greener direction We're seeing very exciting initiatives pop up, whether it's related to offshore wind, green shipping, hydrogen batteries, ammonia, and carbon capture. Uh, So when we have that magical mix, owning up to your responsibility, setting ambitious targets for uh, addressing your climate impact and recognizing the opportunities and putting money into it, that's when uh, miracles will happen.
1: Just before I let you go, Could you tell us something about the Uplink challenge related to the ocean? Uplink, as listeners to Radio Davos will remember, is this platform at the World Economic Forum where the forum invites people to submit great ideas for new ways of doing things. And it's a way of networking and seeking contacts, potentially funding. And there's a challenge at the moment particularly about the ocean. Is that right?
3: Uplink and uh, Friends of Ocean Action uh, recently launched uh, the Blue Food Challenge, basically to um, seek out new ideas to boost sustainable seafood. And this uh, competition uh, or the submissions are open until the 22nd of June. And the best uh, 10 to 20 submissions will be invited to a six month uh, accelerator program by Friends of Ocean Action to help scale and advance their impact. So of course, this is a very exciting opportunity, both for innovators out there, but also to advance uh, blue food solutions. So I hope if you're listening and you have a great idea, please submit it here.
1: Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the blog that accompanies this episode as well. Nina, it's been delightful to have you on the program. I hope we get to speak again, particularly once you launch this magnificent ship to discover everything we need to know about the ocean. Uh, but for now, we're gonna to have to leave it there. Nina Jensen, CEO of Rev Ocean. Thanks very much for joining us.
3: And thank you, Robin, it was a pleasure.
1: Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. And join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Alex Court and Amanda Russo. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening
2: and goodbye.